From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. The coronavirus has had devastating effects on the American economy, but bicycle sales are booming. Sean Tevendale is owner of Blue Ridge Cyclery, a bicycle shop in Charlottesville, Virginia. He says customers have been lining up outside in extraordinary numbers. With the social distancing, serving everybody outside, we end up with people spaced six feet apart on our porch waiting for service. And uh, this past Saturday, uh, Sully the shop dog apparently felt that there was an excessive line that he needed to assist us with and came outside, did his business on the roses, and then proceeded to walk to each of the customers down the sidewalk to greet them and say hello. Seemingly in his attempt at customer service, and it took Sully probably close to 20 minutes to say hi to everybody that was waiting on Saturday uh, for Jip and myself to help them. And Sean's bike shop isn't the only one experiencing this renewed interest in biking. An unprecedented increase in bicycle sales has caused a nationwide shortage. And for Sean, it's been frustrating not having the supply to meet the surging demand. Part of what you get to do when it comes to being a bicycle shop employee is you get to do new bike day for somebody. And there's no happier day than new bike day. You know, that's when you get your new 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 toy, new ride, new race bike, whatever it is. And, you know, in some cases, somebody comes to a bike shop thinking new bike day is going to happen. And you have to be kind of the bearer of bad news to tell them that new bike day might be two months off for you right now. Um, so yeah, it's, it's frustrating for sure. You know, we don't, we don't like to let people down. That's just part of our nature here. As more people than ever are choosing to ride out the pandemic on a bike, Sean hopes it'll have a lasting impact on the role of bicycles in society. I hope that we start to view bicycles less as just a recreational item or an exercise item and more as a means of basic transportation. You know, the, the photos that you can see right now of, you know, the L.A. skyline pre and during the pandemic, the difference in the pollution, the difference in the, the smog levels is just so starkly different. I hope people are paying attention to that. I hope that people are really seeing it. The bicycle at its heart is a fairly simple machine. There's nothing fancy about it. But in a lot of ways, that also makes it a really simple answer for a lot of the problems that we're currently having to address here as a society. How can we be healthier? Ride a bike. How can we decrease air pollution? Replace one car trip a month by riding a bike. You know, there's a lot of really good things that I hope come out of this where people discover cycling, not just as a means of escaping the house during the pandemic, but people really discover bicycling and the bike as an answer to a lot of the problems that, that exist for all of us in society. That was Sean Tevendale from Blue Ridge Cyclery. He's not the only one to consider this bike boom a silver lining to the pandemic. Evan Friss is a professor of history at James Madison University and the author of On Bicycles, A 200-Year History of Cycling in New York City. As he and I talked about biking in New York, he laughed and remembered a 2013 segment from The Daily Show with Jon Stewart as the city's residents weighed in, not so favorably, on a brand new bike share program. But of course, this being New York City, somebody's got to have a problem with it. Bikers and drivers alike admit they're nervous with a sudden influx of novice riders on unfamiliar equipment. We want the bike share program, but we wanted less heavy-handed placement of these racks. They're taking away from valuable parking spots. I think it's a disaster for the city. I think it's a hazard. Can you imagine the property values going down? The bike lobby is an all-powerful enterprise. Ah, uh, yes, big wheel. Evan, what did all those naysayers have against the bike share program in New York City when it launched? The bicycle has always engendered very strong reactions. And although things changed somewhat over the course of a couple of hundred years, the fundamental issue about where, how, and if at all bicycles belong in New York never really disappeared. So in 2013, when the city was launching uh, City Bike, 
people were worried that the influx of, of bicycles would detract from automobile traffic. They would deface neighborhoods. And for a lot of people, even pedestrians, there was this sense, a false sense, that it was bicyclists that endangered them more than the hulking automobiles. And ultimately, and perhaps most damningly, that it would somehow change the character of New York, that New York didn't want to be New Amsterdam, uh, that cycling was essentially European, Asian activity, and that bicycles fundamentally don't belong in New York City. And did those things happen? The fears that it would make automobile traffic more difficult, that the bikes would be stolen, that they would be ruined. Most of those fears never came to be. And quite the opposite, within years, and, and fast forward to today, City Bike is by far the largest and most successful bike share program in the country and has become a real centerpiece of life in New York City and has actually encourage people who never would have biked before to become cyclists. Um, and it's helped to lessen the load on other high-use transportation networks. In New York, apartments tend to be very small as well as expensive. And so housing a bike inside an apartment can be difficult. Lugging it up uh, five flights of stairs, as I used to when I lived there, isn't right. for everyone. Uh, and bike theft was always a chief concern of cyclists. And so being able to just rent a bicycle on demand and with the station so ubiquitous, um, it's really become a convenient way for New Yorkers to get around. Uh, and the proof is, is quite clear in, in the numbers. Uh, tens of thousands of rides every single day, millions of miles ridden. When did you live in New York City? Was that just college? Uh, I moved to New York for graduate school, so this was in the early 2000s. I wasn't a big biker. I had a early 1980s Italian road bike, which was constantly half broken, uh, and I kind of enjoyed the view from atop the bike, and especially riding late at night. I was a graduate student at the time, and mm -hmm. for whatever reason would find myself riding through what had been chaotic places during the day, you know, think Times Square at one or two o'clock in the morning. And there was just something beautiful about cruising through the city late at night. So would you say New York City was bike friendly or were there obstacles? When I was living there, it was actually a sort of amidst a great transformation. Bike lanes were typically just painted on the street. A lot of times people ignored them city bike wasn't in existence yet. That said, there were still always more cyclists riding there than there are in the small towns like Harrisonburg, where I live, or Charlottesville, where you are. In many ways, New York is a much more bike-friendly place than these kinds of cities, which have uh, relatively little space allocated for them and which have a lot of cars. So how do you make a city bike-friendly what are the bike-friendly cities and what do they do right? I think the most important thing is to make bicycling safe. Uh, the number one reason people don't ride a bike is fear. Riders often feel rather naked on the road and they're riding alongside hulking thousands of pounds of vehicle of steel next to them. And we all know that when a bicycle and a car collide, it doesn't usually end well for the cyclist. So the logic goes that if the city as a whole was made in such a way to invite cyclists and allow them to feel safe, that lots of other uh, user groups would ride. And in New York, the real innovation was creating protected bike lanes in which uh, the city used a row of parked cars to physically separate and cordon off the bike lane from the curb, which when you're riding on it gives you the sense that you have your own little roadway. Uh, and there are other kinds of regulations and laws that can be passed. You know, for example, you can disincentivize automobile traffic and encourage bike riding by timing the lights to the speed of a bicycle. 
what may seem like small things that can actually have pretty dramatic increases. And a lot of places in the world where the bicycle is hugely popular is because it's the most convenient way to get around. If you keep building parking garages and adding motor traffic lanes, that doesn't go a long way to promoting bicycles. Can you tell what's happening now in New York City during this incredible coronavirus shutdown period in New York City? Are people getting out and riding bikes because they're afraid of the subway and Ubers and stuff? Americans in general are falling in love with the bicycle again. Uh, And I guess that's one of the silver linings of this age of coronavirus. Um, And I see it out in where I live, lots of people riding their bikes in New York, where concerns about picking up germs on the subway are, are very real. Lots of people are thinking about how they're going to move around the city. Car ownership relatively, especially in the denser boroughs, is fairly low, and riding a car is often a headache in New York City. So the bicycle, once again, this 200-year-old device, seems like a nifty solution for many New Yorkers who are buying bikes like Americans are in record numbers, not seen since the early 1970s. And cities are, are trying to respond by accommodating them uh, and and creating new spaces for the cyclists. Is Mayor de Blasio opening up more streets? Yes. So de Blasio has called for the creation of 100 miles of new space to be opened up to cyclists along the streets. Uh, And so his, his pledge of 100 new miles of bicycling, walking, and skateboarding space is, I think, you know, a real effort to increase availability. New York is obviously a very dense place. Automobile traffic is down. It's hard to physically distance in New York on the sidewalks alone. But it should be kept in mind that New York has roughly 6,000 miles of streets. So this is still a pretty small amount. And unlike some other places, de Blasio hasn't signaled that this is going to be permanent in any way, but rather a kind of temporary measure to deal with the increased usage during this age of coronavirus. What about other cities in America? Anybody else doing it better? Well, in Oakland, where the uh, commissioner of transportation was someone who used to work in New York City during the Great Transformation under Jeanette Sadi Khan, has pledged uh, to open 10% of the city streets, which is quite a, a large number. And Seattle, perhaps most interestingly, has promised that it will not only open 20 new miles of streets to bicyclists, but that these streets would be permanently closed to automobile traffic. Um, So this is an opportunity to reshape the city long after this pandemic ends, hopefully, in order to create more livable cities, in order to promote biking and walking, and is using this as an opportunity to not just accommodate the sudden swell of cyclists, but also to try and encourage them to remain cyclists long in the future. And there are lots of people, I think, who are appreciating aspects of this era in which few people are commuting to work, in which the streets are quiet and people are walking on them, feeling some sense of ownership of them, and imagining what they could be like. In New York, the streets account for about three-quarters of all the city. So 75% of the earth on which New York sits is a street. And so in a dense, cramped place, that's a lot of space that could be used for something other than people sitting in cars. This pandemic is offering, I think, a chance to, to reconceptualize what those streets might look like. So interesting that this is one of the silver linings to a otherwise awful circumstance, right? Yes, And I guess one of the interesting things I'm thinking about is the degree to which there will be any staying power. In the early 1970s, Americans bought more bicycles than cars. And this was an era in which people thought with rising gas prices and the oil crisis and an environmental movement in swing, 
that people might permanently switch to the bicycle. And there have been small moments as well in New York, for example, transit strikes, blackouts in which people can't use the subways, that ridership spikes. And some of that spike continues for some time as people learn uh, and love riding a bicycle and continue to do it. But for the most part, those great booms eventually bust and things return back to normal and bicycle ridership decreases quite dramatically. We'll see if this time is different. Well, Evan Friss, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thanks for having me. Evan Friss is the author of On Bicycles, a 200-year history of cycling in New York City. He's a history professor at James Madison University. And speaking of silver linings, you may have noticed, maybe while out riding a bike, that the air is a bit fresher lately. Matt Ike is an environmental science professor at Virginia Tech. He says greenhouse gas emissions are in fact down, but he worries that with a rise in plastic use during the pandemic and the rollback of environmental regulations in the U.S., the health of the planet isn't exactly on the upswing. Matt, there are parts of the world, the U.S., China, elsewhere, that have seen dramatic improvements in air quality since the pandemic started, 30% in some places. And park rangers in Yosemite are talking about animals, bears coming out to have parties. Do you think there's a silver lining to the pandemic for the environment? I think so, Um, especially when we talk about emissions of greenhouse gases and other things due to manufacturing and transportation, power generation. The question is, is this something that's going to be sustained for the long term after the pandemic ends? And that's the real big question, the what if. I feel like we've never seen such a long period where we all sort of held our breath and saw the actual improvements. I think a lot of people are looking at that and they're seeing the changes in the environment. They're seeing cleaner air, clearer skies. And I really hope that this will be the impetus for a change to a a more sustainable society. Have you talked with your friends and heard from colleagues who say, oh my God, I can see the increase in air quality? Yes, especially those that are in big cities. In New York City, I have colleagues in Southern California, and they've seen a definite difference in air quality, especially with the reduction in smog and particulates, being able to see the skyline and the blue skies. What's the downside of this period when it comes to the environment, do you think? Well, everybody's looking right now at the kind of the silver lining, but there also is quite a bit of bad news, unfortunately. For example, we're seeing an increase in deforestation especially in the Amazon rainforest. I knew that was happening before the shutdown, but it's continued apace, apparently, right? Yes, it's actually accelerated in many areas, not only the Amazon rainforest, but rainforests throughout Africa. And the biggest issue is there's no enforcement right now because there's a lack of income coming in via tourism and other industries. Unemployment has occurred. There's a lot of illegal loggers, and enforcement has been scaled back. Also during the pandemic, a silver lining has been that with humans not disturbing their habitat, animals are freer to roam, and people have more sightings of animals in places that people once dominated and no longer do. Yes, that's true, but we're also seeing an increase in poaching of animals, especially in rainforests in South America and Africa. And the major reason there is that safaris and other tourism where people come in to see the animals, is huge in terms of the economy in many countries, such as South Africa and Kenya. Without those tourism dollars coming in, they can't hire rangers to protect a lot of those animals from poaching. Also, a lot of people now that would work in the tourism industry are unemployed. They're not getting a paycheck. So more and more people are going out and hunting what we call bushmeat to feed their families. So not only are animals threatened, It also raises our exposure to new viruses with that potential zoonotic transition between the animal and the human being and the potential for new pandemics. It's so complex, isn't it? 
It really is, but that's Mother Nature. And I'm sure you're familiar with this as well. The EPA recently relaxed water and um, hazardous waste regulations. So they set new guidelines for companies to basically monitor themselves for an undetermined period of time during the pandemic. So the agency will not issue any fines for any of these violations that these companies have for air, water, or hazardous waste requirements, which is unfortunate because ultimately the most important thing from a human health standpoint is clean air, clean water, and clean soil. I've also read that single-use plastics are on the rise right now. Is that true? Yeah, that is, and that's an issue dear to my heart. So the biggest issue right now is the personal protective equipment that a lot of the medical workers are using, and that has to be disposed of. It can't be recycled. Also, more people are using bottled water, and you're not allowed to bring water bottles into places to refill them for the potential transmission of the virus. Um, Also, there's just a lot of plastic bags being used right now. And unfortunately, the plastic industry has touted that plastic bags will not carry the virus, whereas cloth and paper will. But that's not true. There's a recent study that came out in the New England uh, Journal of Medicine that shows that the coronavirus could last longer on plastics than it can on metal, paper, or cardboard. I do a lot of traveling um, with my undergraduates and study abroad. And one of the places we go to is Ecuador, and we spend some time in the Galapagos Islands, where plastic pollution is a big issue. Were you stunned in Ecuador to see the waste strewn everywhere? Yeah, you, uh, you couldn't go to an island. Um, even, even the most remote islands in the Galapagos Islands, you would find plastic bottles and microplastic on the beaches. We'd even see animals with six-pack rings around their neck and playing with plastic bottles such as the seals and sea lions in the ocean. And I've also seen this on other places that I've traveled to. We do a study abroad to West Africa, in particular Senegal, and just strewn along the beaches are just piles and piles of plastic bottles, single-use plastic, and plastic bags. Have they accumulated there from the ocean, or have people put them there? Mostly it's disposal. Um, There's no means to recycle those plastics, and a lot of these developing countries use single-use plastics, so they're used once, and in most cases they're going to be thrown away. Eventually, they get into surface water bodies and they make their way to the oceans. And that's the biggest threat to our ocean ecosystem right now are these plastics that ultimately degrade to microplastics and then accumulate along the food chain. And I'm sure you've seen photos of seals and sea lions with six-pack rings around their neck or sea turtles with straws in their nose. So that's one issue. The second issue is ingestion of these plastics. And whales where kind of filter feeders, they're going to scoop up large amounts of water, and they can't discriminate between krill or sardines and microplastics and other plastics. So those plastics accumulate in their system. And we're finding whales that are dying on the beach, and when they do the necropsy, they're finding that that whale actually has ingested a lot of plastic. And then finally, a lot of these single-use plastics have bisphenol A and phthalates and other compounds that have been linked to endocrine disrupting compounds, which means that they disrupt the endocrine system in animals. So it really is a major issue from an ecosystem standpoint. We may see major fisheries in other areas begin to collapse because of this persistent plastic pollution that we have in the ocean. Do you have thoughts on what we could do to stop it? Do you think we should simply not make plastic products? Well, there's, we can't just eliminate plastics, especially when you look at it from a medical standpoint. They're very important. But I think there's a lot of areas where we can reduce the use of single-use plastics, and that's the biggest thing. I mean, just simple things of reusing your own cloth bags and not using plastic bags. I tell my students, you can go to the local co-op instead of using plastic bags to get your grains and your nuts or other things. You can use a paper bag, or what I do is I just bring in mason jars and use those. And that's the other issue with this pandemic. A lot of these places will now not allow you to do that. With the weather warming up and people doing more outside, bicycling is on the rise everywhere. Many cities are actually closing down streets and making more lanes for just bicycles. Do you think these environmental changes might actually stick? 
They may. There's been a lot of research that suggests um, times of major change, such as a pandemic like this, can lead to what they call the introduction of lasting habits. And in this case, such as commuting, using bikes, or in many cases, a lot of people may now do less international travel. And now with everybody becoming so familiar with Zoom, most of those meetings may be conducted remotely. So we may see some changes in habit as a result of this pandemic. But we're also seeing a substantial rollback in, in regulations in the current administration. So we're continuing along with the Keystone Pipeline even during the pandemic. We're trying to create um, the Pebble Mine, which is in Bristol Bay, Alaska, a large mine in one of the most pristine uh, salmon spawning areas in the United States. So unfortunately, even though we're, we're seeing some positive or silver lining, so to speak, with the pandemic, we're not seeing changes in terms of other environmental impacts that may take place to the environment. Your state, Virginia, has just signed into law a goal that all electricity production be carbon neutral, no natural gas, coal, or oil, by 2050. Is that fast enough? In my opinion, it's not fast enough. Um, we're seeing major changes right now due to climate change. So I think it's the right step, but I think it needs to happen faster than 2050. There have been proposals in this bleak jobs outlook that new jobs would be created in the renewable energy sector. Is that something you hear your colleagues in science giving some thought to? Yes, and I think that's a great idea. And if you look back to the Great Depression under FDR, and he created that, that New Deal program where he put people to work in the Conservation Corps, creating dams and other projects that not only employed the people, but helped spur the economy. And I think this is a perfect opportunity for the United States to generate this Green New Deal. We know climate change is real. We know it's on the horizon. So if we can employ people to incorporate more renewables in the energy infrastructure, um, reforest, deforested lands, all these things that will benefit climate change in the long term, I think that would be huge for future generations. Matt Ike, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Well, thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I appreciate it. Matt Ike is a professor in the School of Plant and Environmental Sciences at Virginia Tech. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. Good evening and thank you for joining us. We're gonna begin with breaking news because more than one fourth of Americans are now being ordered to stay home. States across the country are ordering restaurants and bars to shut down this to help contain the coronavirus. Now restaurants and bars in states like New York, California, Illinois, Ohio, Massachusetts, and more are closing up their dining rooms and limiting many of them to takeout only. Last March, restaurants were forced to close their doors to mitigate the spread of coronavirus, and they shifted to takeout only. While the new takeout culture has allowed them to stay open, it's generated a huge amount of plastic waste. Mary Beth Manjarovic is a biology professor at Virginia Military Institute. She's been thinking about ways to make the takeout more environmentally friendly. She says the answer is simple. Restaurants should use compostable takeout containers, but why they haven't all been able to do that is a little more complicated. Mary Beth, a lot of us are relieved that restaurants have been able to shift to takeout only during this pandemic, but you've also been looking into one consequence of all that takeout food, extra plastic, and it's not biodegradable. Is there really that much extra? Should we be thoughtful about it? Well, I would hope so. You know, I think I think a lot of people who generally went out to restaurants all the time have probably not really thought about to-go containers because they're, they went to the restaurants. But now that they're getting that same food delivered or, or to-go, 
they're noticing a big pile of styrofoam containers in their counters or the plastic that they don't know what to do with. And so I'd like to think that people are starting to take notice of, you know, the waste that is being generated with this kind of new-to-go culture. What have you seen in some of your own takeout once you got it back home? What sort of excess did you have that made you regret it? I don't like um, certain places because they might use styrofoam. And that just, I can't do anything with. Plastic, I can sometimes reuse. And then also the plastic cutlery. You know, it drives me nuts because not only is it plastic, but then it's packaged in a plastic bag. And and then I get it home and I don't need it because I'm eating at home. (laughs) So I can just use my own. What would it take to switch to biodegradable products? And which ones would make the most difference, do you think, if we could actually do it? The biggest barrier to switching to these compostable materials is is cost. Um, it's something that, you know, it, it can vary anywhere from 25 cents more to 85 cents more. Um, there's there's a big range in terms of um, what products are available. But even a 25 cent increase doesn't sound like much. But when you add it on to everything else that, the, especially now that the restaurants are dealing with, it's it's a big cost for them. It's a big um, price to pay. It's so interesting because you've been thinking about this since the pandemic hit us and we've had all the takeout food, but actually you started looking into compostable restaurant materials when a remarkable group of women in your tiny college town decided to get together and see what they could do. Yes, it was an interesting kind of um, meet and greet where this group of amazing women, the Northern Rockbridge Women's League, one of their members was getting takeout one day to bring to a friend. And she just kind of thought, there's a lot of waste here. Isn't there something we could do? And it just, one person just saying, isn't there something we could do? And and she got together a group of people and we brought together anybody who might have an interest in conservation bring them together and see, is there something that we could do about this problem? Is there um, something that we could just change within our community that would make an impact? What sort of fact-gathering did they do? You know, we we started to talk to um, a lot of these distributors to see what, what was available. We didn't, before we started this, we really weren't sure what the options for compostable takeout containers even were. Were there options that would be suitable for every restaurant out there. And then we also wanted to figure out, well, what are the restaurants even interested and willing to switch? You know, what are the, the barriers that they might have? And that's actually um, something they asked me to do is to develop a survey and ask these restaurants within our town, um, kind of assess their attitudes, things like how much of their how much of their business is to go orders, which was was interesting when I was looking back at it. Some it ranged from zero to forty percent. Before it was just kind of a a fraction of their business, and now it's kind of it's, it's become their sole business. And the nice thing was that most people are very willing to switch if it became a little bit more economical for them to do that. Is there a way to make it economical? Yes, I would like to think so. One of the questions that we asked them was if they would be willing to, if they thought their patrons would be willing to pay more. And most people, I think, would be willing to pay more. I've seen a lot of COVID-19 charges now that are popping up on restaurants um, receipts. And I'm wondering if this might be a, a time to add, you know, a 50 cent charge for compostable material. I so appreciate that you and this group and so many others are really thinking about this because there was a time when we all switched pretty much to recycling and dividing our garbage between maybe compost, recycling, and trash. But I've been feeling very guilty and worried about where my recycling really is going and is it really being recycled? You know, and that's that's a guilt that I think a lot of us have because I feel like the act of recycling kept a lot of that guilt at bay. You know, if, if you can recycle something, then you think, okay, it'll be used again and it'll have another purpose. But when you actually look at the numbers and think only about 8% of all our recyclables get reused or recycled, um, it, it kind of, again, it kind of goes to that. It's a little bit of a depressing stat and it starts to make you kind of rethink, well, maybe recycling isn't the best option. And in the grand scheme of things, it's probably our, it should be our last resort. 
you know, we really should, you know, we, we've all heard of the reduce, reuse, recycle. Well, we need to shift our thinking into refuse, reduce, reuse. I think that's kind of a, just a, a habit we need to start getting into is, is just saying, you know, we don't need that plastic cutlery or I, I don't need a, a straw when I'm sitting at the table. And the interesting thing is that that should save restaurants money. So you think it would be something that restaurants would want to encourage. Um, and, and hopefully they will start encouraging that. There's a phrase called ecological fatigue. What does that relate to? When you start to do all this, you feel very small. You're not making much of a difference. And there's only so much that one person can do. And it starts to get very tiring because you know you're not really making a big difference. But if every person is doing that, then, you know, it can have a big impact. It can lead to some big changes. Do the students you teach in your biology and conservation class show symptoms of ecological fatigue sometimes? It is a very depressing class, but I've, so I started to incorporate both a positive and a negative anecdote each each class to try to show them that there are a lot of good things that are coming and to make them aware that there's still the, the negatives, but there are a lot of good things that, that are coming and things that are changing as well. Do you think this period of pandemic, as awful as it's been on so many levels, has also given us a positive thing, a chance to catch our breath and when it comes to the environment and recycling, um, think of refreshing ways we might do things differently, even when we emerge. I would like to think so. I mean, I think that this has just kind of given us a time to take a breath, to kind of reevaluate things within our own lives. I know that for some people, it's given them a chance to do projects that they've been working on. And um, that's within our own community that... It's kind of funny that we're talking about this because I've been doing a project using wine bottles and I've been trying to collect wine bottles for a long time. And now a lot of people are at home drinking wine. So <laughs> I've been able to collect a lot of wine bottles. Yeah. And then a friend of mine is also doing a project with wine corks. So the corks go to her and the bottles come to me. So it's a way to, again, kind of connect with your community in a, in a very eco-friendly way. Um, and it can you can do it socially distanced, too, because people just put their bottles out for me to pick up, and it works out really well. What are you making? It's actually a um, border fence for my flower garden. The, with, the, with the narrow ends up? No, it's flipped over. Oh, that's beautiful, right? I hope so. It's. I think it's going to—I saw a picture of it once, and I'm, I'm hoping I can recreate it. <laughs> it's just taking a lot more bottles than I anticipated. Um, I estimate I need about a— 150 to 200 bottles. So I could help out. <laughs> it's it's, it's eye-opening. You got get to see um, that people have some interesting wine habits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, but you know, I'd also like this this whole period of of kind of um, you know quarantine. I've noticed a lot more people are doing things like gardening and reconnecting with nature, going out for hikes, and it's those kind of connections with nature that we need to have in order to instill this love and uh, protection of nature for the future. You know, and, and I would love it if my kids came out of quarantine, just, you know, thinking about the garden that they put in and how we got to have the biggest garden ever, or, or um, you know, and those, those connections with nature are so hard to put a price on and that you can't put a price on that. So I hope that people are able to just realize how important nature and biodiversity and conservation is to their their own lives. Well, Mary Beth Manjerovic, thank you for sharing your thoughts on this on With Good Reason. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Mary Beth Manjerovic is a biology professor at Virginia Military Institute. Coming up next, what your doctor can teach you about global warming. Back in 2007, Ed Maybach created the George Mason University Center for Climate Change Communication. Using what he learned as a public health specialist, the center has built programs that diagnose the problem of climate change and then look for ways to cure it. Ed, I am fascinated that there is a center to think about how to communicate with the public about the 
ills of climate change. Yeah, in fact, effective communication is the essence of the way we in public health respond to problems. Our data show that there's just five key ideas, five key beliefs or, under, or facts that the average citizen needs to know in order to care about climate change and in order to, to know what actions to take. And that is, you have to know that it's real, it's human-caused, it's serious, it's solvable, and the experts agree on these points. When you know those five things, then you're pretty well prepared as a citizen to figure out, okay, well, what can I do to, to be part of the solution? Do most Americans see climate change as an important issue? Most Americans understand that climate change is real. And by most, I mean about 7 out of 10. Only about 5 out of 10 believe that it's human-caused. They do want to see more done about it. But when you actually ask people where it, you know, where they rank this in their list of top issues, it, it doesn't come in the top 10. Often it doesn't even come in the top 20. Other environmental issues like clean air and clean water are ranked much greater concerns for the average American. One of the projects of the center encourages TV weather forecasters to talk more about climate change during broadcasts. How so? The American people place a lot of stock in what TV weathercasters have to say about global warming. A TV weathercaster who was on the air here in Washington, D.C. at the time, Joe Witte, called me up and he said, you know, Ed, I'm really taken by your survey results, which shows that I'm a trusted source of information about climate change or global warming. Because what I know is that unlike most climate scientists, I've got incredible access to the public. In many ways, they have sort of the perfect combination of attributes to be effective climate educators. They're the ones who can say, you know that really bad storm that we just had or that really bad heat wave that we're currently having? This is not an isolated event. This is actually part of a pattern of changes in our weather and changes in our climate. And here, let me show you the data. Over the past five decades, we've been getting more and more of these extreme weather events. In, in my backyard in uh, the Washington, D.C. area, it's really clear that my daffodils have been coming up earlier and earlier. For my local TV weathercaster to actually show me the data of when bud burst is happening or when the daffodils are coming up um, earlier and earlier with each year is a very graphical, visceral way of connecting what we think we might be experiencing, but actually showing it to us in the data. Are you feeding this material to the weather forecasters, or are they just coming up with instances on their own? Yes, we've, we develop materials each week. We started with a single weathercaster in Columbia, South Carolina. We're now up to more than 200 weathercasters around the country. Um, our most popular piece ever actually had to do with poison ivy growing bigger and becoming more allergenic. Um, it's a consequence that lots of people care about because lots of people are highly allergic to poison ivy. Does it ever backfire on you? Because there are periods of weather events where people say, ha, huh, they said it was getting hotter, but look at us. That's exactly why it's so important not to go silent during those events. Um, because when we get an unusually cold day or a, an unusually bad snowstorm, that runs counter to people's expectations about global warming. And that's why it's so important to have trusted public figures disabuse the notion that any one weather event makes a trend, but in fact the trend is quite clear. We are having global warming, the climate is changing in every community in the country, and here are the ways in which it is affecting us. Your center has also conducted a survey of doctors recently that showed most doctors have already observed health impacts from climate change. What did doctors report back to you? What had they noticed that they themselves felt was a consequence of climate change? What surprised me was how knowledgeable they were about climate change, much more so than any other professional group that we have worked with, including broadcast meteorologists. More than half of the physicians we surveyed in two different medical societies told us they're already seeing manifestations of, of climate and health problems. Increasing asthma, for example, and one of, the, one of the manifestations of climate change is we do get more bad air days. So asthma rates tend to go up. People with asthma tend to go to the hospital more frequently. Most people don't have any idea that climate change threatens human health and well-being. So to have a trusted local 
professional, a, a pediatrician, a family practice doctor, be the one who brings that information forward to members of his or her community, it's a really good way to start that conversation. What are some of the other early stages for maybe other climate change communication projects at the center? One of the most exciting research projects that I've been involved with has to do with identifying potentially the most important single misperception about climate change in America. And that is that the average member of the public thinks there's a lot of disagreement among climate scientists about whether or not climate change is happening. As it turns out, that's entirely wrong. There's an overwhelming scientific consensus that human-caused climate change is happening. It is a myth that didn't emerge by accident. It's a myth that's the product of a, a very clever disinformation campaign. There's currently a, a, a documentary f uh, out in the theaters called Merchants of Doubt, which documents exactly how that myth was manufactured. But our research has shown that that myth is not only incredibly pervasive, most people buy into it, but it's also highly consequential. People who believe there's disagreement among the experts are less likely to believe that climate change is real, human-caused, serious, and solvable. So we're now using our research to find ways of setting the record straight. You come from the public health world, not climate science. Have you found a big difference in how scientists from each of those communities behave? Oh, yeah, they're so that's such a great question, Sarah. Um, in public health, it is our DNA that when we identify a public health problem, we roll up our sleeves and we try to solve that problem. In climate science, conversely, climate scientists draw a very clear line in the sand between their research, which investigates the nature of the problem, and anything on the other side of the line, which is getting involved in helping society make good decisions about how to deal with the risk. They just don't feel comfortable doing anything that might be construed as advocacy. My climate scientist friends tend to be worried that the more they drift from sharing the facts, the more likely it is that they will lose the trust of the public. So we, we put that assumption to a test. We created a fictitious scientist. We called him Dr. Dave Wilson. We created five different posts on his Facebook account, one of which was purely informational and the other four of which became more and more advocacy-oriented by increments. And then we recruited experimental participants to randomly look at one of those Facebook posts and answer a number of questions for us. For each of the five Facebook posts, they told us very accurately sort of what the mix was between information and persuasive intent. But regardless of what the mix was, they had a high level of trust for Dr. Wilson, and they maintained a high level of trust for other members of the climate science community. So our experimental evidence showed, well, that, you know, your fears that you will lose the trust of the public, if you share the, your belief that we have a problem and your belief that we should be responding to the problem, the public won't trust you less for that. In your study of public health problems throughout human history, have you ever seen a case like this um, where there was a mass public health concern that people felt they couldn't speak out about? This is the most vexing problem I've ever seen, Sarah. I've, I've worked on the HIV epidemic. I've, I've worked on cancer prevention um, and detection. I've worked in, in substance abuse prevention and treatment. I've worked on multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. This problem has everything going for it in terms of being the most difficult problem to understand, the most difficult problem to communicate, and the most intractable problem in terms of vested interests who don't want to see society move forward and develop solutions. On the other hand, what I learn in our surveys of the public is incredibly heartening because I, I learned that the American people don't understand the problem well, but they understand it well enough to know that it's bad, that we should be moving forward in developing solutions. They want to see their elected and appointed government officials doing more. They want to see our uh, leaders of industry doing more, and they want to see themselves doing more. For me, that's very heartening. Do you think changing individual behaviors can really make a difference? Or should we just be focused on major policies at the international level? 
in reality, there are 7 billion of us on the planet. Every one of us takes actions every day that contributes to the problem. Even so, I'm convinced that the most important thing that each of us can do as individuals, as citizens, is try to encourage our elected officials to do the right thing in government. That is the kind of action that's going to make a big difference over the long term versus the kind of action that you could take in terms of choosing what you drive or in terms of choosing you know, how, how you light your home. Those, those aren't inconsequential actions. And for people like myself who care, um, I do those things. I, I try to minimize my driving. I try to light my home with light-emitting diode bulbs as opposed to incandescence. But the most important action that I can take is to contact my elected government officials and encourage them to do the right thing about climate change. I counsel people, don't, don't be fearful. Just roll up your sleeves and get busy. Well, Ed Maybeck, thank you for sharing your insights on this with me on With Good Reason. Thank you, Sarah. Ed Maybach is director of the George Mason University Center for Climate Change Communication. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Virginia Humanities acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Allison Byrne, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Some of the music is by Blue Dot Sessions. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.